I'm Stephen Doby, Senior Conservation Program Manager for the Eastern United States with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Durham, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, President of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, Director of Conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska Director of Science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Soholt. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Stephen, I remember seeing a post that was really popular on social media in the circles in which you and I probably find ourselves a lot on social media, which is you know, the outdoor world, the conservation world, the the uh, sometimes just the wildlife world world, you know, all the different things that we follow, like, and the algorithm lands us here. Uh, In fact, last night, uh, my wife and I were were joking about joint Facebook accounts. Um, So, you know what? I'm not even going to hide it. My brother, I'm criticizing you right now. Um, I won't say which brother, but he has a joint Facebook account with his wife as of just recently because one of their accounts got hacked and they didn't bother to create a new one. And I make fun of them mercilessly about having a joint account. But uh, my wife's like, if we had a joint account, what would the, what would our two algorithms like filter Ooh. to? You know what I mean? It's a good question. <laughs> it'd be like, it'd be like hunting and like, uh, you know, sourdough bread, I think would be like oh, the two God. things. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's like, that's like homemade is what that is. It's yeah. a very homemade. Ours would be just Facebook marketplace. Just straight, just all yeah. Facebook marketplace, yep. cheap cabinets. Right, yeah. right. Coffee. But but I'm going to guess that Stephen and I probably have pretty similar algorithms. And in the algorithm that I was on, this article, well, well it'd be different articles released by different entities, you know, related to the outdoor space, kept posting this story about this ancient elk shed that somebody had possession of. It wasn't like they just found it laying on the ground recently, I don't believe. Um, but but somebody found this shed at some point, and it had carved into it D. Boone, and it was dated like 1770s or something like that, I think, or 1760s. Yeah. And um, it, it you know it's going to lead everyone to th- just jump to whoa daniel boone held this shed this elk shed at one time i should say shed antlers so cervids shed their antlers every year as testosterone levels drop um but but uh it appeared that daniel boone had found this shed and had carved his name into it in a date and then you know just drop the shed back on the ground, which is crazy to me because I love shed hunting. Um, but I imagine there were a lot more sheds laying around at that time. And um, it, so then, you know, all right, this is a cool story. Well, then it, the story mentioned that RMEF or Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation was somehow tied in with this shed and the research behind it, like validating it. Or, or doing a, what was it, a carbon dating test maybe? It's carbon-14 dating, yes. Okay, okay. Can you give us the inside scoop 
on the shed? Was it legit? All that stuff. Yeah, well, I think the family came forward. And this is a family that lives in Lexington, Kentucky. Okay. And in like 2017. And they came forward, and I believe it was uh, there's an association in conjunction with Fort Boonesboro, which was mm. the first settlement in Kentucky mm-hmm. established by Daniel Boone. Well, they have a historical association. They brought forth and said, you know, I've got something we want to give you. It just sits in our basement. And so they present this to the, to the Fort Boonesboro Association, I believe it is. And lo and behold, it's an elk antler. Of course, we haven't had elk in this area since, you know, around the time of the Civil War. Mm, wow. And it's obviously old. Um, a lot of damage to it. But it's an elk antler. And um, one of the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife Resources uh, biologists kind of got connected and pulled in and looked at it. And like, yeah, he's, it's, he's a friend of mine. I used to work with him. Well, they ended up reaching out to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. We have a grant program um, where we fund outreach endeavors. And this one just kind of was like a no brainer. I was like, man, imagine if we can find a good lab, do the carbon 14 dating and at least narrow it down to a window to see if it's a possibility. Yeah. um, So it worked out and lo and behold, um, and it's scribed on the, the base of the antler and there's either the base is, is was fractured. It was gone. So you couldn't really tell mm-hmm. if it was a shed or maybe could have been a harvested elk. Who knows? But with the letters D and B-O-O-N, and it's 1778. So pretty intriguing considering Daniel Boone spent so much of his time in Kentucky. So right. uh, long story short, we ended up contracting with a lab. They did the carbon-14 dating, and they get the results back, and it kind of – assigned it a window of like 1734 to 1806. So wow. it's literally right in that window of, of possibility. Um, so, you know, whether Daniel Boone wrote it, that'll forever be a mystery. Right. But I mean, what are the chances? I mean, yes. Someone could have, you know, some someone could have done this much later, but it, it certainly looked legit. And, and kind of all the facets of the story honestly kind of lined up and, and daniel boone was a a really popular figure mm-hmm. in kentucky um so it wouldn't surprise me if you know he had this aura even back then and someone you know could have written his name like graffiti now people you know, right yeah yeah, or yeah. Or, and it was probably the same back then with daniel boone he had that positive notoriety after the during the revolutionary war it's pretty cool yeah, uh, that, I love that story, and and I agree that the timing is probably the best, the best provenance, I guess you could say, yeah. of of what what it could be, because for someone to just find a shed and carve that in after afterwards, well, to find to have a shed of that age is just going to be it's going to be hard to find because it would have had to have been picked up which is interesting in in of itself because the shed was in pretty good shape still right like it wasn't it it wasn't all chalky and as if it'd been bleached out laying in the sun and chewed up by squirrels and stuff like that the the family had maintained it as an heirloom i think Hmm. they had wow they had said they had even i guess it passed down the story or it was written um that someone in their family had found it in like the mid 1880s or something Okay. 
Wow. So they the family had had it in that possession their whole time. So it was in wow. honestly That's remarkable condition. Yeah. 130 years that they'd had it, let alone since when it was sitting on the ground. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 Just, just a fascinating story, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun to know that stuff like that can exist anywhere you know yeah we have a we have a friend that we're going to have on the podcast again soon um judd mccollum who does barn uh restoration work Mm -hmm. so i mean you're talking some of the most some of the oldest wood frame structures on our continent you know he'll uh do you remember the one nicholas that he posted about recently that was built by ship builders in like the yes. 1600s yeah and it was up in and it was up in maine and the they were taking the barn down to fix it up and then re rebuild it right and i think it, the landowner wanted it moved to a better spot because they had sold the property but they didn't want to leave the barn behind or something like that and um uh, you know, he talks about some of the stuff he'll find in the nooks and crannies of these ancient old barns that he's yeah. he's uh, redoing, and uh, it's just fun to think that things like that antler can still exist out there that are such a a prized piece of history, you know. Yeah. And uh, also really cool that because that's way out of the the normal work that I imagine RMEF does, but that they were willing to you know play an important role in. And that can people go see the antler now? Is it on display somewhere? I'd have to research that. I believe um, it is on display. Yes. Okay. And it's at Fort. It's either maybe at Fort Boonesboro itself, or a, a, a local museum associated with it. But yes. Okay. Well, I definitely cool. want to. I definitely want to check that out. I was down in Boonesboro. Um, I don't know, two or three years ago, maybe mm-hmm. three three years ago, and. Uh, at that time, unfortunately, there's a bunch of flooding going on down in that river valley, and yeah. and uh, you couldn't really get to, around to see much. But there were a few old structures, you know, tucked around yeah. that we could we could see. And uh, I'd love to go back though and and uh, find out more information there. But but uh, no, just a just a great thing to kick this conversation off with. We're of course joined by our guest Stephen Doby of. RMEF, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And uh, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. My pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, How long have you been with RMEF now? I've been with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation since the fall of 2015. Awesome. Yeah. So you've been there, you've been there for a good while now. You're, man, that's, you're coming up on uh, nine years. And that's when you that's when you really know a company well i think after you've been there for i don't know maybe maybe it's like the three-year mark when you've when you've been somewhere like you really feel like you you're in the know and man by the time you're nine years in uh you're just a you're you're just a regular there so (laughs) that's uh that's pretty cool what'd you do for work before that you know i um i i got into wildlife personally mainly through photography Hmm. and it was okay i want to learn more about wildlife so i can get better photographs that was my drive and that kind of took me down a road where um went to to college got a degree in biology and then wanted to focus further into wildlife and uh got my graduate degree at the wonderful university of tennessee in knoxville 
and I did black bear research for, gosh, almost a decade, trapping, hmm. researching black bears all oh, over the southeast. Cool. Yeah. And within that, I was fortunate when I was finishing some work as a research associate at UT that they were going to reintroduce elk in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And they said, man, we need somebody on the ground to track these elk. And so, I mean, really? No brainer. I said, yeah. well, I'll do it. And so uh, I joined the doctoral student and we were the first, the, the biologists there. When we brought elk in and put them on the ground and then subsequently released them, I was out there every day tracking those elk. They're all radio collared. Um, documenting life history of those elk and kind of in transition and moved up to Kentucky. I was a wildlife program coordinator, with the Kentucky department of fish and wildlife resources and oversaw their black bear program and wild turkeys and fur bears and trapping and pigs and Bigfoot and black <laughs> panthers and <laughs> you name it. And uh, then this opportunity presented itself and I thought, I want to give this a shot. Um, Man, I, I'm thrilled. I love working with the Elk Foundation. It's an amazing organization. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, man. What's your What's your personal uh, your personal take on Black Panthers and and Bigfoot? You think he's out? Think they're out there somewhere? I think extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's well mm. said. That's, that's well said. I, I just man. think that for both for both of them, and, and you know, I, first of all, I'm fascinated with what do they call it? Uh, cryptozoology, yes. cryptics, or something like that. Uh, I'm fascinated by that stuff. I think it's, I think it's very interesting, and it's fun that people, yeah. people have the imagination to apply true scientific process to, to, you know, try and prove their existence, right? But I'm with you. I think that that you need the extraordinary evidence. That's very well said. I've never heard it put that way. Um, you need the extraordinary evidence, and on top of that, I think we have an extraordinary amount of observation that is in the in all of our wild places. Pretty much, trail cameras have been around for a long time. Cell cellular trail cameras are used so yeah, they're used so frequently now. There's guys that. Uh, so here's another preview, right? Nicholas, we're going to talk with uh, Jake Hofer soon of Exodus Outdoor Gear. Exodus is a major trail camera manufacturer, and he interviews guys on their podcast. And one of the questions he often asks is, how many trail cameras do you run? And there's guys that will run well over 100 trail cameras just by themselves. God, you know, That's crazy. And, and you're talking, there's guys that have – thirty thousand dollars in trail cameras out in the woods and with that kind of surveillance going on people there'd be at least one good clear trail camera picture of of both those things i think by this point well, I, can't you're kind of sounding like a bigfoot hater you know you're no, kind of bigfoot hater. I hope, hey look i hope he exists i do i, that I think would, that'd be no, awesome. that would be the most horrifying thing i could imagine don't i i love the <laughs> pacific northwest which is where he's supposed to be and if i found out he was real i would never i would never go maybe back he's friendly him. maybe you just need to carry some jacklings he just with needs you. a little love yeah, yeah. he just that's right jerky <laughs> I can't believe the first thing I said this episode had to do with Bigfoot, man. <laughs> I can. I can definitely believe that. But, but uh, No, I, I'm curious. I, I wanted to ask this question earlier. Oh, you know what it is, Ken? 
I had a bigger breakfast than normal and I'm crashing. That's what happened. Oh no. So let it be known. Um, Steven, I, I was curious. So when you're tracking, when you're tracking black bears and then, and then tracking elk, walk us, walk us through that kind of what's the cycle like when you're actually interacting with the animals. And then when you're tracking, what are you tracking for? Yeah. Well, and part of this will reflect the, how much the scientific advances have occurred just in my short professional experience. But mm. the, the bears, these are, <clears throat> these are to document population demographics, generally of bears and habitat use. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so obviously first thing you need is a bear. So um, we're not using the culvert traps, the big walk-in steel type traps. Um, the places that I worked and the work I was doing was I was out generally in these very remote areas, uh, either in the Southern Appalachians. I did my graduate work down in the Okefenokee Osceola ecosystem in hmm. Georgia and Florida. So you're That's out in the cool. back country or the swamps in that case, and you're trapping with leg snares. Now that sounds more menacing than it is. These, these have very key modifications to prevent injury. So for, you know, you're in a situation fortunate to trap a bear using a leg snare, we, we need to anesthetize it, we'll knock it out. So we give it a chemical mobilization injection, um, fairly safe drugs with bears. They kind of knocks them out for 40 minutes to an hour. And we'll, what we do generally is at, of utmost importance, put a radio collar on that animal so we can track its location, physical location. And we'll pull a tooth to age it. Uh, we'll take blood. We'll take hair samples to uh, some genetic analyses. The radio um, collar goes around its neck or around its foot or around its neck. It okay. sure does. And, and bears are tricky because they put on a lot of weight. Um, mm. Their weight really fluctuates from the time they emerge from a den. They're at their lowest weights of the year. Mm. to then the next November, they could, you know, there's bears will double weight within mm. a calendar year. Wow. So it's, it, there's accommodations <laughs> for that in those collars. And so, you know, when we started back in the day, and I'm talking about like the, the mid late 1990s tracking bears, they were just, they would emit a VHF beacon. It's just a, a, a beep, mm -hmm. just a beep. And so we have triangulation equipment that allows us to just kind of listen and you get a direction, an azimuth. Okay, the strongest signal is there. You go to another location, get another azimuth, get another, and where those cross, you'll have a, a point location. Okay. Mm. Or we would be up in a very unsavory uh, little Cessna tracking from the air <laughs> and you just get over it and circle until you get it tighter and tighter. That's my location now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's more expensive, but we're just putting GPS collars on animals mm -hmm. and the data just comes into the computer at home. Or the How office. long do those batteries last? It'll generally last, you know, a solid two years. Wow. Wow. So it's I charge my phone every day. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Man, that's wild. So what what's the main purpose of location tracking? It depends on the on, on the research or management goal. Um, for for bears, very often it was just to document um, their seasonal movements. You know, we can overlay their physical point locations with the habitat coverage, so we mm. know in what habitat they're spending their time. So we could say, oh, okay, so it's 20% um, Southern Appalachian oak hickory forest. They're spending 80% of their time there. That's significant. Mm -hmm. uh, or vice versa for elk. You'll see the converse. Usually you'll see open grassland habitat making up the majority of their uh, point locations and their habitat use. Um, 
but also just to document movement patterns, mm. survival. If these collars uh, either fall off an animal or an animal uh, expires, put it that way, um, the collar obviously is going to sit perfectly still. So mm-hmm. the collar sits still for two hours. Generally, um, it triggers a, a mortality signal. So we know, okay, let's go pick up that elk or bear or what have you. And generally we can get there quick enough to assess a cause of death. So a lot of great info that we mm. get from, from tracking these animals. What, what usually killed a bear? Like when they give off a mortality signal, what was the usual cause? Bears, bears are pretty simple. It's either, um, a bullet is they die during the hunting season or they're struck by a vehicle. Mm. Yeah. Of course, natural mm. cause. It, and it's interesting very often natural cause of bears it's old age uh, bears are well it depends i'll call them wild bears bears that aren't <laughs> habituated by people and being fed yeah I'm about wild bears um you know one thing that generally limits their they get so old that their teeth wear down mm. and they're just functionally not able to oh so they're living longer than they really should be living to begin yeah, we've, with. we've had bears live in well into the twenties, twenty years old, wow. or thirty. Yeah. Are those bears almost exclusively just picking through trash cans and dumpsters to to get food? They can still they can still chew soft enough food, or are they? It it, it just depends on the environment it lives. Mm-hmm. You know, bears are really opportunistic creatures. Black bears, and they're so intelligent. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh. Um, you know, they, they, there's a threshold in which a behavioral threshold, and once those bears cross it they get so accustomed to people there's usually no turning back for those bears unfortunately they're going to get hit by a car or someone's going to shoot them Mm -hmm. Um, i was reading a a cam haynes book listening to it actually while i was running not a good idea and and um he was saying he he was defending hunting saying that look they can either die in uh, i think he was talking about elk um they can either die by a shot like in a few minutes from a bullet wound uh, and me. Uh, yeah. And, or they can be eaten alive. He's like, basically their option is a very, very small percentage die of old age. And, and he would say that hunting's like the best end for some of those animals. What for like, um, for like the elk, what are they usually expiring from? Like, do they ever just lay down and they die of old age or, I'm sure that happens. Yeah. Vehicle collisions, um, hunting, um, and depending on the region you're in, um, elk, there's a, it's a moderately short list, but a list of, um, diseases or infections they can die from in the Southern Appalachians. There's a, a fairly common, it's a parasite. It's called a meningeal worm Mm. or brain worm. Some people Mm -hmm. call it. And it's, um, you know, associated with snails and these snails can flourish on these open field meadow habitats and deer elk just munching along, minding their own business. They, you know, may ingest a couple snails and that can um, manifest with these um, parasites, these worms growing into their spinal column and oh. eventually up into their brain and, it's it's pitiful to watch. I've seen it happen. They're just you know walking oh. in circles for hours mm. or days until they fall over. Um, but now that that's not a I wouldn't call that a 
significant cause of mortality, but certainly one of concerns in certain areas. Mm-hmm. But what generally, you, what, vehicle collisions and hunting. Well, really? So well, that's over 50% of elk deaths. Well, and Nicholas, you got to remember, too, what you're you're talking about two halves of the country here. Yeah. And, and where Cameron Haynes is doing his hunting, there's a lot more large predators, yeah. grizzlies, wolves, and mountain lions, which there are mountain lions in the eastern part of our country, but, but wolves and grizzlies not being there, that's going to be the two, two of the three biggest uh, predators. So the, yeah. you're probably going to see more elk, I would imagine, right, Stephen, more elk that are that die of disease or old age before, you know, cause if you, if you have a elk that's walking circles out in, you know, Northern Idaho or, uh, you know, Montana, Northwest Montana, there's going to be a wolf or a mountain lion or yeah. a grizzly that's going to take notice. And yeah, he's dying mm-hmm. of a disease, but he's going to have to die by, by teeth and tooth and claw before he, yeah. before he reaches that point. So, but you think that over 50% on, on the eastern half of the United States, east of the Mississippi, over 50% of the elk die of car and um, and hunting? I wouldn't say that 50% of the elk, but I would say of the documented mortality events, mm-hmm. I'd say over 50% of those are um, vehicle collision or, or hunting mortality. Because they, they, they really, without an absence of predators, they're pretty yeah. long-lived animals. Mm. Uh, and, and people like watching elk that's especially in the east because you know these are relatively new on the landscape since like the late 1990s yeah it's a huge um source of economic revenue for a lot of local economies from Mm. tourism not necessarily from hunting so they almost have this protected status because people that's my that's that that's frank that's joe that's sally Mm. you know they identify these elk and um, they know them just by sight I mean, they're, they're some of the more majestic um, creatures in, in North America because bison, bison are huge, but they're like big and husky. You know, you don't look at it and be like, wow, you're like beautiful. You know, you look at it and you're like, man, that is a cool species. Um, but in terms of like like majestic and, and staunch, it, I, yeah, I think elk are kind of the peak of uh, North American fauna. I think they're really cool. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're awesome. So, so we're getting into this, this next big part of our topic here. We're starting to talk about elk on both sides of the country. And, um, we're not really looking at the con- continental divide here, I guess in a way we sort of are, but when we're talking about like, uh, surface water drainage, I guess, but, um, we're, we're looking at the Mississippi river as kind of our, our landmark historically. Yep. Is that, is that correct, Stephen, when we're, we're looking at Eastern elk species versus Western elk? Well, subspecies, I guess I should say. Right. Yeah. Generally right around that Mississippi river basin. Yeah. So, I mean, just to start out and I, I only learned about this, I don't know, maybe f- probably at most five or six years ago, but I knew there were elk throughout much of the the continent at one time. Um, today there's elk probably in, you know, now that we have political state boundaries, right. We have, we kind of view it differently than, than the first, you know, European settlers to 
come to America would have viewed and documented things. They just viewed it as a continent, whereas now we view it as 50 different states. But, but um, now there's probably elk in what, maybe 20 states, 15 to 20, I would guess. There's probably a, like a, you know, we'll, we'll say a technical elk population, a huntable elk population is probably more like 10 to 12. But, but um, like elk are probably found in, would you say 15 to 20 now? Uh, from, from that Mississippi River Basin eastward, uh, and that's including Arkansas and Missouri, there's 11 states alone right there. Wow, wow. Yeah. So then you have all that's of the really West, cool. or much of the West anyways. Yeah, yeah, so maybe even higher than what I was, was thinking, maybe closer to like 25. But um, at one time, though, pretty much – trying to think of the lower 48 other than maybe like new england i don't i don't know that new england ever had any elk species or any elk uh subspecies living there but uh from at least pennsylvania west virginia virginia uh new york maybe um on the west pretty much everybody had had elk right it Hmm. was a different landscape yeah when 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 the the landscape started being transformed largely by, you know, it's, you don't say it, you know, hard to think of prescribed fire back then, but um, indigenous people, Native Americans used fire hmm. um, because they saw the, the quality of improvements to the land, the, the habitat quality, um, mm-hmm. and that cr- created openings um, that highly utilized by turkey, elk, deer. Um, and then with the industrial revolution and, you know, so much of the wholesale logging, um, was replaced with, mm. um, development, mm. um, the habitat was lost and, and it, for a long time, it, it's not to say that over hunting was an issue because those people were trying to survive. Yeah. I mean, they were just trying to put one meal in front of the next, yeah. but it was an absence of regulated hunting mm-hmm. and just decimated many of those animals while they were also battling dwindling habitat they were just wide open especially something like an elk that comes you know six to nine hundred pounds it's kind of hard to hide yeah that's a good point (laughs) do you think there was ever um let's go back to colonies pre pre pre-united states do you think there was ever sustainable hunting going on in that period or uh we stepped foot on the land and immediately the population just started going down from there no i'd i'd say there was a, a progression. Um, I'd say it was sustainable to the extent that um, indigenous people knew that, you know, too much pressure would cause those animals to move and go elsewhere. Well, they didn't want that. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to have to follow those animals unless they had to. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when, when Europeans and then transformation to colonists, um, man, the bison is a perfect example. Oh, man. I mean, they were decimated and that was mm-hmm. through, it was almost just target practice. Mm-hmm. is what that was akin to. Yeah. Um, but again, there, there was a, 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 there was a lot of social history there and, you know, a lot of the, the, the extermination of the bison was an attempt to remove a food source from the native Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of suggest they move elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of evolution and our, our management practices for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So ultimately, and we need to probably suss this out a little bit. I keep throwing this word in there, subspecies. 
there's a bunch of different subspecies of elk. Um, I should have looked up the scientific name for, for elk, but, uh, um, there's a bunch of different subspecies. Uh, do you know all of the subspecies off the top of your, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. Um, there's, there's quite a few. Yeah. Currently, Uh, currently we've got, of course, Rocky mountain elk, which most people are mm -hmm. familiar with. Um, then you got the Roosevelt elk, which is generally, you know, Washington, Oregon, Northern California, Mm -hmm. pool elk. California, and in the Manitoban, which obviously up in Canada, there was an eastern subspecies, um, but that is now extinct. A lot of the, right. the, the great majority of the elk used for the restoration efforts in the east, um, some of those early ref- efforts that were Manitoban elk, but many of those were Rocky Mountain elk, just because okay. of their availability. Okay. That's yeah. I was I was going to ask. Well, that's interesting. So so yes, the the species and going back to that elk shed that Daniel Boone carved his name on, that would have been most likely from an extinct, well, almost most certainly from an extinct subspecies of elk. The eastern elk subspecies is now yes. totally totally gone. Yeah. yeah, it'd be really cool to do some further, not just carbon 14 dating. I may suggest this. If we do, so, it, it, there may be not enough genetic material left in the, mm. in the antler. Cause mm. after all it is bone to begin with, but it'd be really cool to do a genetic analysis. Yeah. yeah. Of yeah. The, that, that would be awesome. To see how does it compare to today's Rocky Mountain elk? Well, I think they, they're trying to bring mammoths back from like fossils. So, <laughs> well, but that, know, but that's, that's uh, they got, this is <laughs> yeah. Well, and they have soft tissue there too on those because there's they're frozen. You know, they're oh they're, yeah, they're preserved and and I've seen Jurassic World. I know how that's going to end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm steering clear of that, that scientific realm. Oh man, Go, going back to uh, Judd McCollum, Nicholas, he sent me this hilarious meme where uh-huh. it's like uh, this this guy posts. He's like, I was watching a. Um, Jurassic Park with my son the other day and my and my son was like uh dad where was this and he's like oh this was like down in you know South America uh you know we'll go someday they just got some problems to to like work out right now (laughs) the guys the guys like my son was just looked at me and said I don't know dad it seems like those are some pretty big problems to work out (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I, i'm i'm waiting for that point you know with my son when he's old enough to not be traumatized by watching jurassic park at too early of an age to try and pull that trick on him but but uh <laughs> no i i agree i think when you start you know bringing back some of those species you better be careful what you're asking for but um but yeah, yeah. That, that would be awesome to to do that dna analysis on that to to see um you know, what, what differences there were, but it also may, you know, makes me wonder one of the things I had here on, on our notes for, for today's conversation is do, do the Eastern elk subspecies, do, do we just consider like, where's the line for that? Do we say, you know, West of the Mississippi. So then where we're at here in Iowa is technically West of the Mississippi. Would those elk have been considered, um, Rocky Mountain subspecies, or um, would they be considered Manitoban? Maybe, um, 
I don't think they could be Thule or Roosevelt, probably. But but uh, the would we consider would we consider them to be Rocky Mountain here in Iowa, Eastern in Illinois, or or would they have drawn that distinction further west? That's a good question. I don't know as far as the Eastern Elk. Um, they would have covered a fast area because there's so much between the Rocky Mountain Elk and the Mississippi. So mm-hmm. you get that gray area in between. I would suspect there'd be, you know, kind of a hard to pinpoint a, a, a direct line, but I'd say there was some overlap yeah. historically within those ranges. Sure. Well, and what's, <laughs> what's also interesting, though, is those elk were eventually extirpated that were in Iowa in, I imagine maybe some held on in Nebraska because there's some pretty remote parts of Nebraska. Um, but maybe, maybe some of those elk could carry some of that Eastern, Eastern, uh, you know, elk genetics, like on the, on that furthest East Rocky mountain, elk subspecies range maybe there was some there was some hybridizing going on there or something that that would show up as markers in in modern dna but it's impossible to have eastern elk subspecies back again which is pretty tragic and pretty sad yeah yeah we're 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 lucky to have the rocky mountain elk largely because that's been general source for so many of these states and, and you know the the really cool thing. Of course, I'm biased. I live in Kentucky, but um, Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife, when they decided to tackle this mm-hmm. this idea of elk restoration, um, no one did it to the scale that Kentucky did. You know, mm-hmm. they they trapped and moved and released over 1,500 elk onto those wow. coal fields. Um, every other state in the East, it's been you know 20 elk. 100 elk something you know in, the, in that range hmm. and now kentucky is the you know it, it's gotten to the point it's such a healthy and large elk herd that you know once we got into the 2000s kentucky was serving the, the wild elk in kentucky were serving as the source for other states hmm. like virginia hmm. for Missouri. that's cool that's really cool to be able to kind of pay it forward like that and not have to go back to you know montana or arizona to get elk you get them from the east that's pretty yeah cool. that is really cool yeah and, that's fascinating um a while ago because they had uh you know they're having more and more wolf sightings in minnesota and they um attribute it to several different things but a heavy one is is how many whitetail are how much whitetail there is right now how many whitetail um but do you see any issue or any bordering areas where predators maybe that used to be there or maybe never were there stepping in to the ecology. I'd say Minnesota's just because of its proximity, there's there's always, you know, a likelihood for wolves to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a pretty remote area. Wisconsin is another place. Um, Again, with wolves, it's, it's Wisconsin has a really healthy wolf population. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see the dynamics, um, ebb and flow between those uh, not just elk but deer and wolves yeah in that in that state and a lot of that you know hinges upon federal restrictions um, related to hunting mm-hmm. um, 
you know, some have a hunting season one year, it's no hunting season the next year. And and a lot of that, you know, evolves from anti predator hunting, um, Mm. legislation. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Wolves and bears people. Those are just cuddly little stuffed animals. That's how so much of the general public sees them. And it it affords them just this unnatural protection. Mm. When I worked for the Department of Fish and Wildlife here in Kentucky, I was our first black bear program coordinator and I implemented our first black bear hunting season. Wow. When that, when that happened, we that goes through a regulatory approval process and that regulation change received more public comments than the last time the death penalty for humans was open. Wow. So did you get any, uh, did you get any hate mail over that? Oh yeah. It was, Around Christmas, I I did receive actually at headquarters a, a box that I perhaps foolishly opened. I thought, ah, somebody sent me something. How sweet! Um, and it was a little stuffed bear with a noose around its neck, and it said, "Merry Christmas." Hmm. Wow, so that's awesome! Wow, did they but, any any death threats you sent your way or anything no, like that? It, it's happened in other states, Pennsylvania. Oh, back I'm sure. In the day. Yeah. Wow. Nuts. Yeah, that's well, that's people crazy. out there on the uh, you get closer to the east coast, they don't take no crap, man. They'll start a yeah. revolutionary war over two percent <laughs> tea tax. Yeah, um, I, I am curious, do you so yeah, for sure, Minnesota and Wisconsin? Well, well, before uh, before we move on from that though, Nicholas, I want to say thanks to Stephen for being willing to do the right thing and oh, yeah. uh, you know, put being willing to face that kind of pressure and and have wildlife managed the proper way it was exciting it's cool i just see it now and a lot of that heat has died off mm-hmm. uh, and kentucky has a, a, a pretty pretty cool black bear hunting season now yeah um, yeah well that's a legacy thing too that you achieved there that's that's a that's a really big accomplishment yeah, yeah. okay yeah. sorry nicholas you can get back to you're your good. question you're, it's a good point to be made i think uh I think bringing conscious recognition to gratefulness in our minds and in our listeners' minds is one of the healthiest things you could do on a podcast. So, but what I, I'm, uh, I guess what I'm asking is I, I, for sure, Minnesota and Wisconsin, I know that there's a growing population of wolves. What about, um, you know, in those, uh, Southern states, those, uh, um, uh, in the Smokies there or, you know, hanging out in there, do you see anything, Approaching in or potential for it? Nothing that's croaching in, but something that's been there all along, and that's black bears. Mm-hmm. Um, elk were, we literally introduced this 800 pound mammal onto the landscape, you know, mm-hmm. post Civil War. It's like, ta da, here you go. And I was <laughs> there when we put those elk in the, in the Smokies. I was out there every day, and it was amazing to watch. Um, Cataluchi Valley is a, the, the area in the Smokies where these elk were released. And, um, you know, they could go anywhere, but in the Southern Appalachians, like open meadow field habitat is a really limiting component. It's, mm. I mean, over 95% forested. So if you find an open field, there's a pretty good chance you may have elk there. And so those elk stayed pretty confined to that valley, which is what we wanted, ideally. Mm-hmm. Well, over the years, I've, I observed personally bears um, in May um, in those fields, wild strawberries would bloom. 
Mm-hmm. It's just a vine like that kind of spreads along the earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those bears would be out there almost in a, like walking like a grid pattern back and forth through these fields and are searching for strawberries. And I, can, I like to picture this in my head, you know, the first time, you know, what else is happening in May? Yeah. These elk calves are being calves born. Are dropping. Mm. And when these elk, these cow elk, um, you know, they'll leave those calves out there all day. They'll, mm. they'll put it down, bed it, and they'll go off and feed. It may not come back till the evening. I've witnessed that. And these bear, you know, I can imagine them looking for strawberries and quite literally trip over an elk calf and go, huh. Well, that looks a lot tastier than a strawberry. <laughs> and I, I, I've witnessed this on more than one occasion, black bears predating on, on elk calves. And what happened was we saw it was uncanny how quickly these bears learned. Um, almost accidentally, they're out there walking these grids looking for strawberries, and now they're finding elk calves. Um, and the number of calf mortalities just started steadily increasing as these bears mm. learned this behavior after never encountering an elk before. Yeah. I mean, it took like one, two, three years. They learned it mm. that quick. So there's certainly possibility for that in these other mm-hmm. Appalachian states, certainly where there's such healthy black bear populations. Yeah. Do you see black bear populations uh, booming because of it? Not because of elk, um, but um Black bears just have the uncanny ability. You know, you've got bears that live around neighborhoods and cause trouble and get in garbage. And you've got this, this other whole component of the population that just flies under the radar. Mm. I mean, they're being bears. They, they're they're sec- reclusive. You don't see them much. And, and I feel like black bears, especially, you know, their populations can reach this threshold. And once they hit that, I don't know how much pr- hunting pressure it would take to bring that bear population back down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think the bear populations are going anywhere barring some you know, drastic event. Yeah. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they, they evolve um, with more and more elk on the landscape. Something yeah. I find fascinating is you talk about uh, bears, black bears, like my mom, who works in the education field, educational psychologist, like she she talks about a student that blew her mind. Uh, She specializes in dyslexia, right? So she's dealing with students that really struggle in school, but she'll test. And a lot of times she'll find out these students are like literal geniuses, but they can't read. So they they're in sixth grade and they're doing first grade level stuff. Um, And I hear like the same thing in your voice about these black bears. It's like, you've been out there with them and just more impressed every time you interact with them. I find that fascinating. Yeah, I feel like sometimes I have to keep it on the down low because a lot of elk hunters do not like black bears <laughs> yeah, and right. wolves. But it, it's certainly an animal to be appreciated just for their ability to stay on the landscape despite and, and honestly flourish despite all the development that we've seen in the East mm. in the last 100, 150 years. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Like a giant yeah, raccoon. You know, another, another, yes. uh, yeah. That, that, I was thinking that same thing, Nicholas. They are very well. I think uh, a nickname for um, for raccoons is washing bear. Um, I think is is a nickname because they are they're omnivorous. They they can you know live in a, all kinds of different environments. They're they're very similar. But um, uh, something that I thought of too with this with Nicholas asking about predators is there's another interesting conservation story um and by interesting i guess we should probably say tragic uh that's going on with the history of the red wolves um in 
I mean, I think they're most mostly known for being in uh, the Carolinas, uh, specifically uh, North Carolina. But um, I imagine at one time their range probably was much greater. And is there any evidence or research that links their decline to the loss of to the loss of eastern elk? I'm not aware of any. I'd say it's just that happenstance that so many other, I'll call them large wildlife because they're bigger than a raccoon. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they, they just um, didn't fare well with industrialization. Um, mm. And of course, you know, during the colonial period and, and even after fur trapping was. Yeah, that's true. He, a key economic generator for um, America, and certainly mm-hmm. in the colonial states. And so, say they didn't fare very well despite yeah. elk deer numbers declining certainly didn't help by any stretch mm-hmm. is it is it believed that the eastern elk subspecies would have been a little bit smaller body size than like rocky mountain i think isn't it isn't it tule elk that are like considered the smallest of the subspecies and those are like only in one area in California or something, aren't they? Um, they kind of have like that dwarfism, uh, island dwarfism type thing going on. Um, but uh, were eastern elk kind of like that too? Were they a smaller, a smaller species? Any idea? I haven't. I, I'm not going to make anything up. I haven't read enough into it. Um, sure. I would say probably smaller. Just based mm-hmm. on general physiology, you know, bigger body mass, you're going to be able to stay warmer in that Rocky Mountain climate. Mm-hmm. Your surface area to, to mass ratio is going to be yeah, different. Yeah, um, you don't need that much protection. So I'd say those Rocky Mountain elk certainly were larger. Mm. Although, you know, we don't see it these days. Uh, well, of course, they're Rocky Mountain elk. We call them Eastern elk. But these mm-hmm. elk that we're seeing now harvested in the east are just insane. My gosh. Yeah. I mean, over a thousand pounds. Well, just the the feed that they have available in the East compared to the West, you know, just the amount of biomass, you know, from browse and, and and just everything they can, they can eat is just so much more in ag fields. (laughs) I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's been part of it too. You know, not everything's been all, all uh, rainbows and sunshine, I imagine with, with the reintroduction efforts, um, I'm sure you remember um, back in, was it summer of 22, Nebraska had their big depredation elk hunt um, in northwest Nebraska because, you know, the the few, there, believe it or not, in western Nebraska, there is not a lot of, like, row cropping done. They have, they have, they call them pivots where they do have, uh, row cropping going on and usually it's they have these pivots where they'll maybe raise some corn for grinding up for feeding their big you know cattle operations through the winter uh, they might have some soybeans definitely a, a lot of alfalfa um, but I, I think a real burden has been you know as the elk are repopulating they find those corn fields and elk not only like to feed they like to wallow and and uh, they can really destroy a lot of acres. Has that been a has that been a big part of the you know the way forward with elk in Kentucky and in some of these other 
Eastern States had that, that farmer, you know, crop damage aspect of it? It, it, it depends on if you look at it regionally and that the Northern Elk States, absolutely. Just because farming row crops are, are, are so prevalent on the landscape. Yeah. There's a lot of interaction. A lot of times not so pleasant interaction between elk and, um, ag producers in the Southern Appalachians. It's a whole different tale. Um, you know, coal mining, um, not a lot of people have a lot of positive things to say about the ecological impacts of coal mining. Sure. Um, and honestly, rightfully so. It's very destructive, a lot of byproducts, uh, damaging water resources for, for decades. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you this, one historical byproduct of those reclaimed coal mines throughout Southern Appalachia is it opened the forest habitat and it created meadows and fields. Mm. And that is the reason that we have elk in the numbers we do in those central and southern Appalachian states, especially the central Appalachian states now. If, uh, you know, we, we Kentucky was able to put 1,500 plus elk on the ground because they had reclaimed coal lands. Uh, and, the, and the byproduct that we're seeing now is just amazing. Yeah. And, and in, the, in those areas, uh, agriculture production is almost non-existent just hmm. because of the terrain. Yeah. So, so in these reclamation sites, and we actually have here in Iowa, we have quite, especially the region where Nicholas and I are at, there are a lot of, of old coal mine reclamation sites, um, that, uh, get seeded down into, um, native prairie. Uh, the fact, so you've mentioned now a couple of times, you know, kind of these, this picture of these mountain meadow, landscape features uh where the cows were dropping their calves um you're talking now too about these reclamation areas and i imagine some of those reclamation areas have a lot of timber on them because kentucky has way more forest than than what iowa does and and historically i imagine it was it was even historically probably had a lot more timber than what than what iowa did but um it really seems, especially here in Iowa, you know, an interesting thing when you think about where elk are found today compared to historically where they were found, you know, there was such an emphasis put on elk living in prairie landscapes. Uh, do elk seem to reacclimate to these native grassland habitats really well? Like it's almost like like hand in glove, yeah. you know, where you took these elk out of these, and certainly there are mountain meadows and things like that in the Rocky Mountains where where these surviving populations of elk were taken and, and moved back. But, but really, elk are kind of are more almost associated today with a forested woodland-type habitat, but historically they were found in these prairie areas as well what dynamic have you guys noticed with with them using these grassland habitats now today yeah you, you painted a good picture that the the grassland habitat that field meadow habitat it's hand in glove with elk um we could put elk um in the southern appalachians or the central appalachians and it's a really remote area there's very little relatively speaking human development very low road density 
not much agricultural conflict, but those elk need meadow habitat. So they wouldn't flourish. They could exist, but I wouldn't say by any stretch they'd flourish. Hmm. So, you know, we, we put those elk in the Cataloochee Valley and the Smokies in 2001 and two. Um, there's generations of elk are still right there in Cataloochee Valley. And the ones that dispersed went to Cherokee, um, on the um, Eastern Band Cherokee Indians land. And it's because there's meadow habitat. The areas that they, when they disperse, they find the meadow habitat and that's mm. where they go. So yeah, it's instrumental. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So, so in other words, if some of these states that had, that historically had, um, that historically had elk, but yet do not have a, a restored population at any level, um, they're probably going to need to prioritize having large, you know, contiguous areas of, of grassland. It sounds like for them to, to really thrive there again. Yeah. Or, or a matrix of grassland across the landscape. Doesn't have to be a, a thousand acre meadow, you know, it could be patches mm-hmm. spread across the landscape. Um, that's often what we see in the Southern Appalachians of Tennessee, North Carolina, um, because they don't have the extent of the reclaimed coal land that mm-hmm. we see in Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia. Yeah. You know, an, an interesting concept that I think is getting picked up on more. Um, and it's, it's, it's relatively recent. I was just listening to an old interview on, um, uh, on uh, another podcast that I like to listen to. It's about a five-year-old interview. And, um, the the person on there was talking about wildlife populations um, really in the pre-settlement to settlement era for American history. And he was describing, man, one time we had, you know, just enormous herds of bison and, and yeah. enormous herds of elk. And that's, that's definitely true. Like there's no doubt about that. We can, we have, plenty of documentation from people who are here we have i guess you could say in a way a fossil record even though these aren't fossils yet we we, you know we find antlers we find bones we find find all sorts of things right um but it's also uh now the the wrinkle that's becoming more referenced and well known and i don't know if charles mann is the the first one to really like you know put this this idea into play. He's the first one I heard it from in his book, 1491, um, where it's this idea that yes, we had these massive populations of all these different wildlife species. And he even talks about the passenger pigeon, which is now extinct, but had probably the most legendary, you know, status for just a massive amount of, of individuals making that popular. They, they talk about there's, there's documentation from, you know, European settlers writing in their journals or whatever at the time, you know, passenger pigeons flew by, started flying over today. And, uh, we expect them to, to continue passing over for the next few days, like the, literally darkening the sky. There's so many yeah. birds. They would land in oak trees and there'd be so many of these birds in the oak trees that the branches would break out of the tree under the weight of all these birds. You know, it's like 
this just totally exaggerated amount. I mean, not literally exaggerated, but, but like this huge number that was being recorded. And the same was talked about with bison and elk. And what Charles Mann suggests was, like, and you referenced this earlier too, Stephen, the native people, the indigenous people at the time had figured out how to, to you know, manipulate the environment to really help these uh, species thrive. And, and like you mentioned, they're, they're one of their most well-known tools was, was fire and expanding these grasslands to be even more vast than what maybe they – they would be all left alone by themselves. Nicholas has talked about this many times. The, one of the things that kills prairie over time is tree encroachment, forest encroachment, and then you lose your prairie habitat to forest. And is is it possible that that because of that, because indigenous people would have been uh, – expanding these grasslands, not just here in the Midwest or even out West, but also in the East that those populations of elk were probably, you know, exaggerated. And, oh, and then the other part of that was in that Charles Mann talks about is, so yes, they were in a way, you know, for lack of a better term, farming the wildlife. Um, but then tragically as, as, Eastern, you know, uh, people started showing up in the Western world, Europeans mainly, they were bringing human diseases over here that wiped out the indigenous people population, uh, estimates as high as 90% of indigenous people were killed by especially smallpox. Um, but also I think malaria was a part of that too. Um, the, the then those the the essentially the table was set for these populations of wildlife to really explode because now you didn't have the people hunting them because they were gone is it possible that elk numbers well let's just focus on east of the mississippi right now would have actually let's say let's go back even pre-indigenous people when elk first started showing up and populating North America, would they have been much smaller, do you think, um, at one time than, than what, you know, we most frequently reference like, Oh, at one time we had all these animals here. Do you think those numbers would have actually been, you know, like a lot, a lot more, you know, concentrated? I think it would certainly fluctuate over time. It just depends on what we want to call time, how far back we want to go. Mm. Yeah. I would say, yeah, the impacts that Native Americans had and their ability to essentially manage wildlife, manage habitat for wildlife, largely with these fire, um, bolstered wildlife numbers, largely. Mm. And these would be animals that graze or, or, or make use of fields, deer, elk, turkeys, song, well, songbirds with Swally biologist coming out of me. I shot a lump songbirds <laughs> in with everything. <laughs> That's good. Um, but, um, you know, when those, and that was, you got to th- think too, pre, pre-colonialization times, they were hunting those animals with either spears or bows and arrows, bow and arrow. Mm. Um, so their success rate, I dare say, was a fraction of what was about to become in the following 20 to 30 years. Mm. And they started trading with the British and getting firearms, um, things of that nature. 
So I think it's just so many factors that just played into it. Yeah. But I'd, I'd say they were probably on the precipice of, of having just incredible large elk deer populations mm-hmm. uh, because they figured out what to do to make it that way. Yeah. And somebody showed up on the beaches and changed all that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fun to imagine that it really yeah. is just a, just a, and it's also interesting too. Now as AI uh, image creation is becoming what it is, uh, people are starting to use that to, you know, Hey, you know, what do they use for that, Nicholas? Is that Chat GPT that generates the images as well? OpenAI is-, is the company that owns Chat GPT, and it's it's a different like it's, it's a, a different, different uh, app. Yeah. Okay, so it's Chat GPT just does text. I think but, so. Okay, it's so, more. I I don't use it that much. Yeah. <laughs> so. There's well, there's another like there's there's some other tool now where yeah. people can basically type in parameters. Hey, I want image generation for you know, this thing. And, you know, the way AI works is it grabs information from all over the internet and, you know, gives you a picture of what all that information essentially codes for. And so that might be a new, an interesting new tool to give us visualization of, Hey, what Lance, Lance, Lance Brisboy, he he posted, well, he he shared a, he shared a post by another, another um okay person kind of in our community though and our it was community. it was cool it was very cool it was supposed to be oh, like yeah. native iowa and it was like meandering rivers very wide streams and different animals and mm-hmm. and um oak savannah basically also just so we don't sound ignorant uh the chat gpt and most i think all ai they don't crawl the internet they oh, okay. feed them like like tons of terabytes of other data Okay, like all of the encyclopedia, you know, or something like that. I like how you said, so we don't sound ignorant, but he really just meant me, people. Well, because I'm becoming a boomer. I'm lumped in with Kent. (laughs) Oh, oh, dang it. I left my flashlight on my cell phone this whole time. But uh, no, uh, yeah. So that's how that's how AI works. Thank you. But it is going to be a, a, a an interesting new tool that, and of course, it'll be impossible to know how accurate it is. But um, might be interesting to give us some visuals on what it could have looked like, and and of course, even you know, going a step further is maybe they'll be able to generate like videos, and then you go and get your new Apple. Uh, you know, what are they? The VR goggles that Apple just released. Yes. And you can almost feel like you're, you're right there on, you know, in yeah. Kentucky, Why live in the world, in the, Kentucky in the, the in 1400s, computer. you know, yeah. that'd be, that'd be pretty wild. But, but, uh, you know, before we wrap this one up, Steven, can you just talk about, um, all the places where RMEF has helped reestablish elk populations? And then I kind of want to ask you, uh, a question about Iowa as we wrap this up. I got one more in there too. <laughs> okay. I got, I got one question, but answer Kent's first. Okay. And I was harking back to your initial question. Did we, t- was it Iowa or Ohio? What were you had an interest in? Is it mostly Iowa? Iowa. Iowa. Okay. Yep. That's where we're Make at. sure I keep everything on track in my head. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so you talk a little bit about RMF accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, we, you know, when I when I came to work with RMEF, I'll be honest with you, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I knew um, it's a hunter-based conservation organization. 
mm-hmm. um, made up mostly of elk hunters, other big game hunters, but generally mostly elk hunters. You know, not until I started working with us did I realize the impact that the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has for um, land conservation, creating public mm. access, improving habitat conditions for elk and other wildlife all across the U.S. Um, you know, last year alone, um, here in Kentucky, and it, I'll probably never top this, um, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation with Kentucky Fish and Wildlife and the Nature Conservancy closed on a, a conservation mm. easement permanent recreational access so wow. it'll forever be open to the public it's almost fifty-five thousand mm. acres Whoa. in kentucky's elk zone um and you know the elk foundation is involved with projects like this all over the east and western mm. elk range much more so in the west you know that was a we're, but we're starting to see opportunities like that this this downturn in the coal economy has created a real interesting time in history where these coal companies or these land managing companies um, are maybe seeing some writing on the wall that, okay, maybe it is time to sell some of these large parcels. Mm. Um, and that's coming to fruition, mm. not just Kentucky, but Tennessee, Virginia. So it's really exciting. Um, just 20 to 23 alone, we had 11 projects that protected over 73 some thousand acres um, across the U.S. Um, uh, a lot of our money goes towards habitat stewardship. Um, me personally, here in the East, we, we put a lot of effort into managing the quality of habitat on reclaimed mine lands. Um, a, because that's where the elk are, but B, those are such degraded environments. Um, oftentimes when those coal lands are reclaimed, they're reclaimed with whatever grows the fastest. That's the goal. Mm. If you want to get your bond back from a reclaimed mine, you've got to have vegetation there that holds the earth still to return it to those mm. quasi-natural conditions. Mm. And a lot of those plant species were non-invasive, were invasive, not native plant yeah. species. So now we're challenged with going back onto these reclaimed mine lands and kind of taking it back and, and trying to put it back into native vegetation. So that's a huge challenge for the Elk Foundation and the Appalachians. Man, yeah, reclaim be- the reclaimed. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. tough. Man, I, my my question's right along alongside with what you were you were saying. From your personal opinion, what are the biggest changes that are I, not ones that have already happened, but ones that are either in the middle of the process or maybe no one's talking about them that you think would establish healthy ecological zones, native zones in. Um, uh, I would say in elk habitat. So any state um, where you, where you feel comfortable and have some expertise, what what do you think are amazing steps that are either currently happening but aren't finished yet, or could uh, you feel like could happen? Yeah, well, definitely in the central Appalachians, in these coal fields of Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia, um, a lot of and and I mentioned this already. I'll, I'll beat it. <laughs> the sun goes down, but it's <laughs> it's getting that reclaimed habitat in the best condition possible. Mm-hmm. Because in Kentucky, for instance, since the first elk was put on the ground in Kentucky in 1997, um, the Division of Mine Safety monitors the number of annual mine, active mine permits. That number's dropped 80 percent since 1997. Wow! That means that that 
in the mid 90s to 2000s that absolute buffet of elk habitat that existed on reclaimed mine lands is being overtaken hmm. by invasive plant species um can't you mention it before just succession trees closing mm-hmm. in so that's a really big thing that we're gonna have to monitor us and and agencies is um at southern appalachian habitat you know something that that a lot of folks don't think about often how it ties in with with hunting in general but there's a really big push right now um for for industrial scale solar development um yeah and rightfully so i mean it it, it can do a lot of great things and, and if we're to meet these long-term goals for carbon sequestration but what you need for industrial scale solar plants is land that is cheap land that is flat and land that has no obstruction from trees or mm-hmm. other obstacles that is reclaimed coal land um in, in many states we're seeing industrial scale solar projects being implemented at the rate of like, I mean, one project, 10,000 acres, Hmm. that's 10,000 acres that will never be in public access again. Um, That's a little bit concerning to me to see where that could go in the future, Mm -hmm. not just for elk, but general hunting and general public access. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got to balance those ecological environmental concerns with public access because I don't want kids to be sitting at home on their tablet eternity i want to have a place to get outside and go that's public steven they could just plug in their vr headset and experience the same outdoors right there yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, that's that's a great point and especially you know that's a little bit because we see those going up here in in iowa and it's not you know it's not such a honestly it's probably a a uh, ecological gain here in in Iowa yeah. because what would that flat land be if it wasn't a solar field? Yeah. It would be a it'd be a an ag field. Sure. Um, but that's a totally different story than in Kentucky where those those open meadow areas that elk need are such a limited you know resource and to see to have to essentially get in a bidding war with with that land that becomes available with something as with as deep of pockets as utility companies that's that's a that's a that is a concerning thing so that's a great point that you bring that up and it it once again you know tells the the um full story on how how complicated conservation um concerns and projects and 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 work can can get but okay so here's here's one for our home state there's yes. so many states that have gotten elk back, right? I'm going to try and name some here. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so first of all, Kentucky, um, Arkansas, you mentioned earlier before we started the call, um, Tennessee, uh, North Carolina, um, Pennsylvania, uh, Virginia. I think I already said West Virginia. Um uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Missouri, Michigan. Um, me. has South Carolina? Do they have elk now too? No, 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 no. South Carolina yet. But uh, Iowa had man. I bet they had more elk than a lot of those states did because they had so much tall grass prairie at one time. 
and Illinois, kind of the same deal. Um, what's it going to take for Iowa to be added to the list of a state that has, and this is the key here, a wild free ranging elk population. Yes. People, I know there's elk farms and you can go over to the Neil Smith national wildlife refuge, which is awesome, but those are in fenced in areas. What's it going to take for, for Iowa to be able to, be added to the list do you think well a lot of things have changed in the last couple years with respect to um, elk restoration efforts and Hmm. probably and no one's gonna like to hear this but probably the most significant thing has in the last five to ten years has been the research that has gone into chronic wasting disease and the threats Hmm. that it poses um, not just to elk but more so to white-tailed deer Um, and collectively across the U.S. most state wildlife agencies what we see is they're adopting best management practices that promote not involving the interstate transport of of Mm. servants deer and elk because once chronic wasting disease is on the landscape there's no cure it's always fatal Mm -hmm. Uh, there's no life test you know, heaven forbid, if, 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 if a deer or elk has moved this positive onto a landscape, it's chances are minimal. It's going to be tested again before it infects so many other animals. Hmm. And sadly, that's, that, that's probably the largest determining factor now in elk restoration. That's very interesting. In the I would have States. never guessed. Um, and Kentucky actually, um, in November of 2023 documented our first, um, positive CWE case from the mm. wild. Um, and, yeah. you know, it, it was probably just a matter of time. Most states, mm-hmm. you know, what we're seeing now and the dynamics of this, this uh, infection, it's, 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 it's mind blowing, really. It's quite frightening mm-hmm. the way <laughs> this, uh, disease works. Um, yeah. But with there being an absence of a live test, there's no way to ensure that you could bring a positive animal and release it onto a landscape. Mm-hmm. Is uh, are there any plans um, on how to deal with CWD? Yeah, it's way above my head. <laughs> every state, literally, quite every state has its own chronic wasting disease response plan, and mm. a lot of those states, because they're CWD positive, they're already in effect, and it ranges. It, it's just a wide range of responses from calling of wild herds. Uh, increasing opportunities for hunters here in Kentucky, um, they realize, okay, we need to test more in these, this one, at least minimum one County where we have a positive test, but we want those testing efforts to be hunter based because mm-hmm. Kentucky fish and wildlife has decreed we are a hunter based entity. So mm-hmm. what they'll do is probably increase opportunities to take deer. So long as they're tested uh, next fall. Um, yeah, but that makes sense. I, Again, in the absence of a live test, you have to have dead bodies yep. to test these animals. And that's going to come through um, largely um, hunting, hunter check stations, or deer processors, um, and vehicle collisions and roadkill will make up the, the last remaining number of samples. Mm. Yeah, that's, that, that is a really interesting thing. I, I had never thought of that. I mean, I, I understand well um, – the effects of 
CWD and the concerns there. And, and, uh, but yeah, I never, I never thought of that as being such a hurdle for, for reintroduction. So, uh, you know, I think the other part and the part that Nicholas, Nicholas and I try and help with is even if that didn't exist, that hurdle didn't exist, it would return to the same old hurdle, which is we don't have the habitat for them. Um, here in mm-hmm. Iowa, as of now, there's too much, too much of our ground is, is, um, you know, is used for ag yeah. practices and the, the amount of conflict that would exist, um, is just, is just, uh, it would be way too costly and, and impractical to, uh, and, and honestly not even fair to the elk, um, to put them in that circumstance where, you know, yeah. they would basically just be showing up to be uh, depredation tag. Are they in Missouri? Know. They are in yes. Missouri, but Missouri. I feel like there's parts of southern Iowa where they could make it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, Missouri just has, you know, central Missouri on south is is just so much different than Iowa. Even though it's a neighboring state, mm-hmm. there's just so much habitat there. And, and Iowa is unique in that there's not, I really cannot think of another state, maybe Kansas that, um, or Indiana, I suppose, um, that is, is just so well suited for mass agriculture use. And, and just even in our, even in the nooks and crannies and corners of our state. Yeah. You find some areas like driftless Iowa, which is just beautiful, wild habitat and much of it. It's just such a small part of our state. And, and to have, you know, a reintroduction effort at scale, we, we basically have to have a way to reward. And we talk about this in an interview with Ted cook of North American grouse partnership, where we, if we're going to have them again, we have to, we have to pay landowners to have elk as to farm elk essentially not not literally have elk farms yep. but yep. but to say hey your acres being available for an elk population in our state is valuable to us here's instead of us buying corn off of you or buying soybeans off of you mm-hmm. we're buying elk off of you essentially off of your acres until we're able to do that and get those private acres um set up as elk habitat um, I, I just don't, I don't think it's going to be able to happen here, but I'm also an optimist. And, uh, I think that those things are going to happen eventually. And, uh, I hope in my lifetime that that can happen, but I think certainly it's possible in my children's lifetime to where, um, we could see elk again here and, and even others, let's go back to the conversation on black bears, you know, those belong in Iowa too. And I think we, we actually already do have one resident, a black bear our, our mascot it, black bear <laughs> that's right and it's it's going to i think that's going to improve too because people are they're getting on board with stuff like this and there's great organizations out there with rocky like rocky mountain elk foundation that um help restore habitat and and bring these animals back to where they belong uh, real quick here steven if somebody wants to help out with the work of rmef um can they just go to the website and, and join as a member Absolutely. I would encourage them to go check out our website. It's couldn't get much simpler. It's rmef.org and you can sign up um, as for a membership right there on our site. 
you can we you know we operate banquets all across the United States, mm. and with any respective state, you know, fifty percent of those proceeds and those banquets go into a fund that we feel that we fund habitat work right back in that state. Mm, so that's awesome. I'd that's strong cool. if if anyone's interested in the Elk Foundation, what we're about, or joining. Um, Obviously, by membership is wonderful, but go to a banquet, see what it's about. And they're all over the U.S. And you can type in your search, your city, your state, and find the one closest to you and even buy uh, the tickets on the on the website. I'd highly that's encourage awesome. that because the money does go back on the ground for, for great use. Yeah, that's, that's pretty great, cool. Great I love how we're wrapping up and Kent just like dropped the bomb of like, what does it take to get uh, elk back <laughs> in Iowa? <laughs> no, like, it's, all right. Well, we'll see later. <laughs> <laughs> no, I ended on a positive note. I think it's going to happen someday. We just got to get everyone on board with making the changes that need to happen, and hopefully, you know, it, that is a big hurdle that Stephen mentioned with the CWD and uh, you know, kind of intercepting the transport. But hopefully, if we have enough habitat on the ground, things can kind of just start moseying on up from Missouri and over from Nebraska and down from Minnesota and Wisconsin. I mean, almost all of our neighbors. I got to think that Illinois is actually Illinois has, especially in the southern part of the state, they have a lot of a lot of um, habitat in place. I feel um, that could could maybe start seeing like a small scale reintroduction effort definitely within our, our lifetimes think of like the Shawnee National Forest area mm-hmm. down there um, and and uh, you know what if all of our neighbors around us end up having elk I think there's a good chance that that uh, we could too someday even with the CWD laws that exist just through natural migration of the species that would be that'd be really that'd be really yeah. cool to see and you know, uh, you know, technology is an amazing thing. Uh, I would like to think that in the hopefully near future we'll have a live test for chronic wasting disease, and that would be mm-hmm. a game changer. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. really would. Yep, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for jumping on with uh, this this great conversation, the one that we've been looking forward to for so long, yeah. and uh, just sharing some of the great work going on with RMEF and you know the these newer chapters in the always growing book of natural history here in North America. And, um, you know, we, we hit some dark chapters there for a few generations, but I think we're in a very bright chapter again right now as, as we see so many people unifying for something better and still have a lot of work to do, but I think we're getting more and more people interested in doing that work and making it happen and so uh we just thank you again for for your work that you've done um both at rmef and even before that especially with black bears and and um just a real privilege to have you on the show hopefully we can have you back on sometime this is a great conversation and yeah, uh my pleasure i don't plan on going anywhere so awesome. reach out anytime Awesome. Well, we definitely will do that. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is presented by Hoxie Native Seeds. Go to hoxienativeseeds.com and buy yourself uh, a bag uh, or two of elk habitat. Um, ready, Ready-made, ready ready-mixed elk habitat. You just got to have the ground to put it down on. And let's start uh, laying down the foundation here in Iowa and expand those options those habitat options throughout the rest of the country um hopefully many of our listeners already have elk in their state and uh, how cool would it be if you could set up you know a part of the ground you own 
and maybe someday have an elk calf dropped off there while mama's off feeding for the day. And, uh, you know what? It's going to take some prairie habitat for that to happen. So go to hoxynativeseeds.com where you can uh, look at all the different seed mixes we offer. And if you just want some backyard pollinator or something like that, that'd be great too. You can go over to theprairiefarm.com for that. But thanks again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, all this change happens uh, one mind at a time. Thank you.